Colossians chapter 1, we've been talking uh, on Sunday nights throughout Lent, kind of focusing in on uh, preparing for Easter and looking at the cross and and looking at different things uh, that were accomplished by Christ in his death, his burial, his resurrection, Um, things that God has done that... um, just really make the cross something that we are just in awe of at all times. Um, you just can't sum it up by saying that Jesus uh, did one thing, because the scriptures just keep talking about uh, all the different things that were accomplished and all the different ways to think about it. And, and so we've covered some ground in terms of uh, Jesus's obedience, this act of worship that uh, going to the cross was for him, and, and how challenging those two things together can be, uh, that he would be obedient and, and sacrificial in that way, and, and what we learn about um, worship and uh, the church coming together and, and those kinds of things, and how he has uh, killed the hostility that existed between humanity and Jesus and, and God because of sin, and that has killed the hostility that exists between us as people. And um, last week looked at the seriousness of sin and the, and the greatness of his love for us and uh, just this kind of like reality check for us. And here on Palm Sunday, I want to talk about something that's maybe, maybe a little bit unanticipated in some ways and something that isn't talked about a whole lot, really. Um, we've talked about a lot of the inward things. And that's a lot of what we deal with on Sunday nights in community groups, really dealing with, with the inner man, the fact that, that Jesus has healed us and that our transformation is this inside-out kind of thing that over time um, that inward change transforms the way that we think and act and all those kinds of things. But tonight I want to talk about something that Jesus has done that is taking care of something that is external, a lot of our focus has been internal, and it always is, but every now and then we need to be reminded that there are some external things that Jesus has taken care of. And, and in that, I'm talking about Satan and the enemy that we have and demons and all that kind of stuff. And, and so I need you to just kind of join me in this uh, openness that maybe Hollywood has lied to us about the devil and about demons and about angels and maybe we've just seen too many movies and have too many preconceived ideas about that whole world to the point where it seems like it's fantasy, you know. We think that angels, you know, have have wings and harps and halos and stuff or um you know, that they come out of, you know, in the outfield or something and help us, uh, you know, win baseball games and things. And then we think that demons, like we watch these like weirdo movies that scare us to death and we think that demons are something that they are not. And so I want us to talk about the spirit realm, Satan and all, all that kind of stuff, this external thing that's out there that Jesus has also dealt with on the cross, that a part of the victory we celebrate and sing about today includes that as well, that he has healed us inwardly, but also he has affected the outside world around us, and we got to be dialed into that as well. So in Colossians chapter 1, there's this, this verse that uh, I kind of come back to a lot 
in my uh, opportunities to teach. It's verse 13. Uh, it'll be 13 and 14 together. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. The domain of darkness, that's, that's what we need to understand a little bit in thinking about this correctly. And so let me back up just a little bit. Let me just give you a really fast rundown of what we're talking about in terms of, the, uh, uh, in terms of Satan and demons and angels and all that kind of stuff. We're not going to turn to a bunch of verses. This is not a teaching on that specifically, but we need to understand it. So just trust me that this is in the Bible, and if you want proof, then talk to me afterwards. Um, so let's start off with just kind of a- answering this thing of like, okay, so who is Satan, really? You know, like, what's his deal? What's he all about? In order to understand Satan, you have to understand demons. In order to understand demons, you have to understand angels, okay? So here's, here's Wayne Grudem's definition of angels. He says that they are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence but without physical bodies. Created spiritual beings, meaning that angels did not exist uh, before God started creating stuff. In the beginning, it was just God. There weren't angels there as well. It was just him. So in the created order, in the beginning of Genesis, he created angels as a part of that. And so they're created just like we're created, just like the uh, natural world around us is created. They're spiritual beings. They are very intelligent. They have the, the capacity to make decisions. Um, they just don't have bodies, okay? They, uh, they were not made in the image of God like humans were. It never says anywhere in the Bible that they were made in the image of God. That makes humanity very unique. Uh, they, um, they're, but they were created to know him, to worship him, to glorify him in every way. Um, and they are not... Uh, all-knowing, omnipresent, all-powerful, you know, those kinds of things. They, they, um, uh, Grudem says in his book, he says, they're, they don't play like man-to-man. They're like a zone, you know, kind of defense. Like, everyone doesn't have a guardian angel. That's completely fabricated. There is no truth to that. But there are, like, the angels do serve a, pro- like, in a protecting role in, like, zone coverage over the people of God. Uh, so you cannot say, like, well, my guardian angel was watching over me. That's not true. But there is this like realm of angelic presence in the world. They don't have bodies. They weren't created in that kind of way. We don't see them or a lot of times even sense them or know that they're there. The times they show up in the Bible are very special, like unique occasions. Um, and so in a general sense, we need to, to believe what the scriptures tell us. There's a lot of angelic talk in, throughout the Bible. It's, a, it's everywhere, but we tend to kind of gravi- gravitate away from it because it's kind of weird because anything that's not tangible, we kind of struggle with a little bit. Um, so if we can just kind of like understand the fact that we can't really understand it fully, I think that'll get us a long way there. But knowing that God has created them, that they are real, that they serve very specific functions, but they are not all-knowing. They're not all-powerful. Um, and... Uh, their presence among us is very much real. And so that would mean if we were to take God at his word, that there are angels present with us now. How you guys doing? Glad you're here. Uh, that they're really here with us now. And that might be kind of weird, and I understand it if we're just like, oh, I don't like to think about that. Well, okay, it's fine. Um, that's why we don't focus on it and dwell on it. You know, we don't pray to them. We don't, the, that, they're not there to serve us, or they're here to serve God. And, and so you have angels and in their capacity to make decisions, 
somewhere between the sixth day of, of creation when God made, uh, Adam, uh, made man and everything was good. Uh, actually, it was very good. Somewhere between there and the fall when Adam and Eve sinned, um, there, was, there was a rebellion in the angelic world. That in their capacity to choose, a whole slew of them got together and decided that they were not comfortable being beneath God in authority and power and that kind of stuff. They thought that they really were created uh, to be more than that, and they aspired to be more than God. And so Grudem's definition for demons okay, are evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world. That in that rebellion... They went from being angels to being demons. And so there can be this, like demons used to be angels, but then they rebelled and they were a part of that whole uh, thing. So somewhere in there, that's when it happened. Second uh, Peter 2 and Jude 6 are some of the references there. Um, when they rebelled, they were not given an opportunity to be redeemed. We rebelled. We who were made in the image of God were rebelled, and God has given us an opportunity for that image to be redeemed through the blood of his Son. The angels were not created in the image of God, and so when that group rebelled, that sealed their fate. They have no opportunity to, uh, to be forgiven of that sin. Um, so now they oppose the work of God, striving to keep people who don't know Jesus from knowing Jesus, and people who do know Jesus from living in the fullness of what it means to know Jesus. Just like angels are present, there are demons that are present. We do not have anything to be afraid of about the demonic world. Okay? That needs to, we need to, again, let Hollywood and all the things we've seen and think, like, push that to the side and let's just put that to death. That we have nothing to fear that in talking about this and, and that kind of stuff, and even in acknowledging the, the activity between angels and demons and that kind of warfare that's going on, we do not need to be afraid of that. And by the end of the sermon, I hope that we'll kind of all be in agreement about that. But we don't need to be weirded out by it. It's just a thing that's happening. It's always happening around us. And the demonic world is trying to, ki- to keep us from living in the fullness of who Jesus is. By distracting us, by lying to us, by um, just doing every, anything that, that they can do to keep us from um, that fullness. They are also not omnipresent. They do not know everything. They are not all-powerful. They are limited in their uh, capacity to mess with us. Okay, um, And so, again, we have nothing to fear. And we cannot, I repeat, cannot be possessed by a demon. If you are in Christ, nothing is going to get in there and possess you. All right, So we can just kind of put that aside. Uh, their tactics include deception, temptation, lies, those kinds of things. And so that, sometimes that, inner, that like, battle that we're facing in our temptations and stuff, sometimes it's just coming from our own like, inward stuff that's just still kind of working its way out, um, learning how to live and who God's made us from an inside-out standpoint. But then sometimes those things are being complicated by this external like, stuff where you'll have these, like, like suddenly you'll go from thinking one thing about yourself to thinking something else, you know, and sometimes that's coming inside, but sometimes it's coming from outside through those kinds of like lies that are being whispered to us and temptations that all, all of a sudden you're tempted to do something. You're like, where did that even come from? You know, there's just so much that's there to keep us uh, held down and distracted. And so there, you have angels, you have demons, and then like Satan comes in and Satan is the, like the leader of the demonic realm. 
Um, he's the head of the demons, leader of the angelic rebellion. He's the one that kind of like called everyone together between day six and the fall and said, hey guys, we're pretty awesome. You know, like can't we do what God does? There's really no big deal. Let's go against him. Um, and in Isaiah 14, it has this, uh, this condemnation that comes against Satan in particular. And a part of his like uh, election speech or whatever, whatever he was trying to get them to do is he says, we will make ourselves like the most high. I will make myself like the most high. That at the base root of all sin and evil is this aspiration to be God because you think you can do it better than him. So Satan is the one who led that angelic rebellion against God. It's his fault uh, to an extent that they all kind of came along and all got uh, shifted from being angels to being demons. And he is the one that is driving all this stuff forward. Um, He's the originator of sin. 1 John 3, 8 says that the devil has sinned from the beginning. John eight forty four says he's a murderer from the beginning. He's the chief adversary and opponent of God and his people. And one of his goals is to bring accusations against us. He loves it when we give him a reason to point the finger at us and say, look at, look at them. Look what, look what hypocrites they are. Look, they, they're, not really, they're not really your children. They haven't really been saved. They don't really know what's going on. He's constantly, apparently, according to the Bible, he's just constantly accusing us and accusing us and accusing us of all of our wrongdoing. Um, And just so that we're on the same page, Satan falls under the same rules as all the other demons. He is not omnipresent, okay? He's only one place at one time. And uh, so if ever you get worried that Satan's going to show up, if, if this is the most, the biggest threat on the whole planet, okay, he would have to come here. He's not everywhere. He's only one place at one time. Um, he does not know everything. He cannot read your mind. He does not, he's, God is not his equivalent. If you want to think of, okay, who's, who is equal with the devil on the angel side of the, of the battle? It's not God versus Satan. It's more like Satan versus like Michael the archangel, not John Travolta, like Michael in the Bible, you know? <laughs> Thanks. And so, uh, so it's not, uh, it's not a fair fight. He's not equal with God. He's just the leader of the rebellion, and he has to follow the same rules as all the other demons, which means that he is limited also. He does not have as much power as we might want to think he does, but sometimes we need to remember he has more power than maybe we wish he did. And his demons are there, and so you have this whole force trying to keep the gospel, trying to keep the kingdom of God, trying to think, keep everything suppressed. And he's so arrogant that he really thinks that he can do it. He still thinks that he can win. He knows that the Bible talks about in Revelation about his ultimate defeat, but he doesn't buy it. Because he's that cocky. He's like, oh, I don't care what the Bible says. And he, he doesn't exist outside of time like God does, how God can see everything that's going to happen. Uh, Satan is also moment by moment like us. And even though the Bible says it, he's like, that's not how it's really going to happen. And that's why he works so hard against it, because he's still convinced in his tiny little mind that he really is equal with the Most High. But that kind of confidence makes him a really, really powerful leader of the demons. And they are also convinced. And when we come in here and we sing about this deliverer, they're mocking us. They're saying, look at him. Look how cute that is. They think they've really been saved and freed. And 
Look at that cute little verse that says they've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. They aren't buying it. And that's why they're working so hard. And that's why we need to pay attention to it. So, what's the domain of darkness? So now we've, we've talked about angels, demons, Satan. The domain of darkness is this realm that's controlled by our enemy and all his forces. That when you think domain of darkness, you need to think about all of everything in the world that is ultimately being driven by this belief that God is not who he says he is and that we would make better gods or, or that there even isn't even a God. Um, that whole system that we're born into and is broken by sin, it's all driven by that verse in Isaiah 14 where Satan said, I will make myself like the Most High. And so all the, the decisions, there's like certain things that come from inwardly from our flesh around us when we see murder or slander, lying, injustice, stealing, deception. There's a lot of that stuff that finds its origin with, within us. But there's also this like massive systemic evil that comes from our human brokenness, and it forms this kind of, like this synergy of evil around us. And so when you look at something that is as evil as genocide, whether it's about a race or a culture or a religious belief or anything like that, when you look at something that is that massive, and is that evil, we can look at that and say, that's a bunch of broken individuals making that happen. But we also have to say, like there's, that is the domain of darkness. That is the influence of Satan and the demons that are working against the things of God, trying to make everyone think that they are equal with the Most High, driving that forward as well. It's both this individual choice and this outside oppression that's there that we're born into. And so genocide or, or um, like just uh, cycles of poverty or human trafficking, all these, really, these big global massive things and wars and all this stuff that's there, Satan is also driving all that. It's not only driven by inward brokenness, it's also this outward oppression. Both of those things are happening. And so that is the domain of darkness. He's behind all of it uh, actively opposing the work of Christ on the earth. And he's capitalizing on the fallenness of humanity and waging war against God and his people. He's just trying to prove that he's as good as God. So, Jesus rides in to uh, town on a donkey, right? That's where this day is about. So what does that have to do with all this stuff? Well, Jesus comes in and his goal uh, is to glorify God, but he also comes to systematically destroy Satan and sin and death and free us from captivity, delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That that verse is one of those amazing like summary, those two verses, amazing summaries of what God has done. That there's this deliverance from that oppression that's there. Um, you don't need to turn to it, but, but Luke chapter four kind of has this this um, amazing uh, kind of unfolding that happens. And here's how, the, here's how the chapter goes. It begins with Jesus uh, going into the desert, and he's fasting, and he's praying, and he's there for 40 days. And that's, that's tied in with Lent. That's why Lent is 40 days, and that's why we fast. And so we're trying to step into the same practices as Jesus. And um, he goes into the desert, and his public ministry has not really begun yet. 
And so before, before he really like starts to like push over those, that first domino, you know, he goes and he spends this period of time in prayer and Satan himself decided that's probably of all the places on the earth I could be right now, that's where I need to be. And so the account plays out and we see this amazing picture of how Satan works. Satan comes at Jesus and there's, there's, there's three, three specific things, but he's so slimy. He, he attacks uh, his physical weakness. He attacks, uh, well, let me back up just a little bit. Satan, I guess, is maybe trying to, to think of Jesus as just like a normal person. And so this, normal, this normalness, you know, which, which we know he's God and man, but he's humbled his, the divine nature. And so Satan's like, I know how to, I know how to mess with humans. So he goes after physical weakness, and that doesn't work. And he goes after his ego, and that doesn't work. He goes after his identity, and that doesn't work. And then he tries to tempt him uh, with, with trying to, um, to basically not have to go to the cross in order to be obedient. He tries to lure him out of that sacrifice and that pain, and that doesn't work either. And in the desert, Jesus is literally battling with Satan. Satan is coming at him with all those lies and all that temptation. He's throwing everything that he can at Jesus. And Jesus is depending on the Spirit to empower him. And he's fighting him with the truth of the Scriptures. And when Jesus comes out of the desert after that time, it says that he emerges in the power of the Spirit. And it says that Satan just left him. And he's like, I'm going to have to come back later at a better, better time. What's a better time than when a man's been fasting for 40 days, Right? And so Jesus comes out of the desert, and then in chapter 4, he enters into, he goes, he goes to his home church, his home synagogue, goes in, uh, they acknowledge him as a rabbi, they hand him this, uh, the scroll, and he reads this passage of scripture. He says, the spirit of, a, of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls up the scroll, sits down, and says, this scripture is fulfilled today in your hearing. And so what has happened is Jesus goes, battles Satan, comes out victorious. And what we see happening from this point forward is these, this is like this programmatic moment for Jesus. He's, when he, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, that means, hey, this, I'm not an ordinary person. Um, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, that's those in, who are in, in desperate need of God's grace. See, proclaiming good news and that word gospel, uh, where that comes from is whenever, a, if, if a new king was, was crowned, then the messengers would go out and they would bring into all the towns and stuff this, this like announcement of this amazing good news that we have a new king. Or if, if the king were to have a son, that this prince was now born, they would send these messengers out. And that was, that's what gospel means. It's this proclamation of good news. And Jesus is saying, I'm bringing good news to those who are in desperate need of God's grace. So the next, it says, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, captive to the bondage of sin, death, Satan, recovery of sight to the blind, spiritual blindness, physical blindness, all of this to be set upright, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The uh, systemic evil of the world will be overcome and all its victims reestablished. 
To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor means that all debts would be canceled and everything would be restored to, its, to where it was supposed to be. Jesus comes in and reads this scripture from the, prof, from the, from the prophet uh, Jeremiah, and he comes in and he says, hey, everything you've been hoping for and waiting for, it's happening now. And the reason that he says that is because he did something in the desert that had not been done yet. He went toe-to-toe with the enemy, and he won. And in Matthew 12, uh, uh, some folks are coming against Jesus, and they're accusing him of being an, an instrument of the devil, and he goes through all these reasons why he's not the devil. And then uh, he says, who, who can go into a strong man's house and just take all his stuff? He says, first you have to bind up that strong man, and then you just plunder away. That's my own version of it. In the desert, Jesus had bound up the strong man. And now he comes in, and he goes into his home synagogue, and he's like, all right, I'm about to plunder. I'm about to get every captive, everyone who is blind, everyone who is oppressed, everyone who needs the grace of God, and to know the year of the Lord's favor is here. It's happening now. And from that point forward, every miracle, every teaching, every healing, every action, every word, everywhere that he went, he's plundering the kingdom of Satan, and the domain of darkness over and over and over and over again. Saying, you will, you will not rule. You will not reign. You just, you just think it. And every single time Jesus does something, it's a reminder to Satan of how little his power is and how bound he is forever. And so from that point forward, we see Jesus plundering the domain of darkness, setting everything right side up. And so Palm Sunday comes, and Jesus rides into town, and this begins this week of, of events, eventually heading to the cross. And the cross was this phenomenal act of war. We don't think about it that way, but it was a battle. It was a war. We can think of it in, in, in kind of in two senses. In one sense, you know, to Rome, I mean, crucifixion was the, it was the ultimate way to destroy a person, to send a message to the people, one, that this is what happens when you break our rules. The other is to show just how powerful they are, that they can destroy a person holistically, physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, everything about them. We will reduce you to dust because that's how awesome we are. And crucifixion was one of their most proud uh, developments. And so Jesus was headed toward this crucifixion, and God's plan was to basically show Rome just how little power it actually had. Saying, yeah, just go ahead, just destroy this this man, and then the power of God's going to raise him. And so Rome really isn't going to know what to do after that. Because they thought that was the best demonstration of their power, and it really isn't. But... But let's think, what's, what's at the base of Rome's, like, ego? It's the domain of darkness. That is what was driving all of their military might and their, and their, their oppression of people and, and all of those, those things that worked themselves out all the way down to crucifixion. It was coming from this, like, satanic, demonic realm trying to push people against the things of God against God himself. And so the cross was not only a way of, showing Rome, of putting Rome in its place, but also putting Satan in his place. 
of saying, oh, is this, this is the best that you have. How about you pour all the evil and all the everything, pour directly into the Son of God and watch him die and then see what happens. To Satan, it probably seemed like he had won. And if you can think, like, okay, there was this, uh, back in the maybe like 80s and 90s, there was this Christian artist named Carmen. Uh, and uh, he, he wasn't really like a singer. He was, I gotta, I gotta go fast. Okay, he wasn't really a singer. He was more of like a, like a talker. You know, he was more, like, take like tone loke, but even less like rhythm and things like that. And so he would have these really dramatic songs and he had a really good, like, like John Ringo kind of voice. And he would talk through these songs. And uh, one of the songs he had was called The Champion. And it was this, like, like, two boxers fighting. And it was like Jesus and the devil, you know. And they would fight and fight and fight. And one of the things about that, it's, it's just so lame now. Um, I'm sure at the time it was amazing. But now you're just like, come on, Carmen. Um, and, but one of the things about it is, like, as the song is unfolding, you realize that, you're like, wait, Satan really thought that he had won. That it seemed from probably Satan's perspective, since he's going moment by moment like we are, that when Jesus breathed his last and said, it is finished, into the hands I commit my spirit, he was like, that's it. We've done it. And in the Carmen song, uh, like the ring announcer is counting the wrong way, you know, like normal, and the Satan starts to freak out. He's counting the wrong way. He's counting the wrong way. And then Jesus pops up off the mat, you know, and it's like this whole big dramatic moment. And it wasn't a battle, like, you know, in that kind of sense. But to Satan, could there be anything greater to show the world that he is the all-powerful one, equal with the Most High. Anything greater than killing the Son of God? Imagine how fulfilled he was on Good Friday. And then whatever you call Saturday. And imagine Sunday. Imagine what was happening in the demonic realm on Sunday. That Rome, Satan, however you want to look at it, had given it their all to prove they were equal with the Most High, and it backfired. So turn to Colossians 2. He's rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. That there is a transfer that has happened and a rescue that we celebrate. Chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Okay? You know what he's telling them? He's like, hey, there's a lot of dumb things that are going to come your way. There's a lot of things internally that you're going to have to work through, and there's a lot of stuff externally that's going to come your way. Don't buy into it. Listen, listen to Jesus. Satan and his demonic forces are lying to us all the time. Internally, we are recovering from buying into those lies for so long. Jesus is working things out internally, but we have this external battle that's it's not going away right now. And so Paul is telling them, hey, just be aware. You're being lied to. 
that all this logic of the world around us and all these forces are there, don't give in. Verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Say, hey, Jesus is the real boss of this stuff. Even if it doesn't look that way sometimes. And that's hard. It's, it's difficult because it's so easy to look around the world or, or to look around us and just be like, man, I, I don't know that God is winning. I don't know that it's getting any better. I don't, I'm just not sure. And Paul's saying, you, you are united with him. You've been filled with him and he is the ruler of all things and all authorities that Satan does not rule the world and he is not dominating your life, and he is not winning. It might look like it sometimes. But our faith is not in our circumstances or what we see happening around us. Our faith is in something that is greater. In verse 11, he kind of uses a weird metaphor here, um, and uh, it would have been very familiar to his audience. Uh, Verse 11 says, in him, or in Christ, uh, also you were circumcised with, with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Uh, what he's essentially saying is that in Christ there is a, there is a cutting away of, of the flesh, of your internal, like, spiritual flesh that has been cut away just like in physical circumcision. He's, he's making this metaphor because they would understand it. He's saying in Christ something has literally been cut away from you. Like it, you, there's something that has happened to you that you may not be aware of, but, but you have to know that the, in your souls, in your identity, that that has been cut away. Verse 12, uh, he says, having been buried with him. Like, listen to how much un- unity there is, like union with Christ in, this, in these two verses. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Okay, so he's saying you are united with Jesus in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, that you and him are one, that God is able to do this, like this internal supernatural miracle to put you there with him. And then look at 14. This is, this is where it all like, uh, comes from. It says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All that we could be accused of um, was nailed to the cross and has been put away, canceled, and is dead. So if Satan is there to accuse us of something, Paul is saying, look, now there's nothing left to accuse you of because all of that was put into Jesus and, and killed and so there's this union that's there. And so when Jesus died, your sin, like your sins died. Everything held against you is there. So Satan is pointing at you, blaming you for something. And God's like, ah, I don't, you got nothing, man. You have no grounds for accusation now because that's all been taken care of. It's been, it's been handled. And so Satan just looks like a dummy over and over and over again. He's trying to blame us for stuff. In Revelation 12, uh, it's, uh, it says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. 
And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Saying that we corporately believe what Jesus has said about us. That we believe he really has taken care of everything through the body and through the blood and through the cross. And that there's nothing left to be accused of anymore. And so Satan has no grounds at all to hold us in any sort of bondage or anything like that because Jesus has freed us from all of it. Look at verse 15 in Colossians. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Read that again. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Okay, He disarmed Satan and all the demonic forces. He disarmed everything that is, that is holding this world hostage. Okay, He's disarmed all of it and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That the cross was this act of war where Jesus goes in takes everything that the enemy has to offer and receives that death, absorbs all of it, and God's power raises him from the dead. In this public way, in this like historical fact kind of way, putting them to public shame, he shamed Rome, but he really shamed the devil. That when we sing about the cross and we sing about the blood and we sing about the freedom, it's not only internal freedom, it's this external freedom as well. That as weird as the world can be sometimes, he has overcome that. And so why do we still have stuff around us? Why, do we still, why is all this bad stuff still going on? Because Satan is not convinced. He still thinks that he can win. He's still trying. He's still trying. And it's so lame. But he's just trying and trying and trying. And we can very easily buy into it. Or we can recognize that our faith is believing that Jesus really has accomplished all of this. That Satan and his demonic forces have been put to shame. Openly, out in public. The cross was this ultimate act of war. And through the forgiveness of our sins... Like, that's how he fought it. We think of war as like a battle, which is why that Carmen song about Jesus and the devil in a boxing ring probably made sense to somebody, apparently. But that's not how Jesus fought. Jesus, Jesus came in through grace and forgiveness and mercy and justice and sacrifice and substitution and willingness and obedience and humility and agony and holiness and love. Like, that's how, that is how the battle was won and Satan cannot do any of those things. And so Jesus was like, okay, cool, I'll take it. I'll take it all. He didn't fight back. He took it. For you, for me, to free us from this domain of darkness. And so there's a freedom now that we're walking in, and there's a, a, like a tremendous, like complete freedom that is to come one day. And so what happens now? You don't need to turn to it, but 2 Corinthians 14, 15, and 16. Paul says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. 
this triumphal procession in the ancient world, whenever a group was conquered, they would march all of the prisoners of war back. They would bring a bunch of them back and they would parade them through the streets and say, look at our trophies. Look at our victory. That was the triumphal procession and they would bring through all of the gold and all of the weapons that they took and all the, all the things that as they plundered these cities. And so Paul is saying that God parades us through the streets of our city and through our campuses and through our neighborhoods. And he's, he's like, look what I have won. <laughs> look at the spoils of my victory. Look, I have plundered the domain of darkness. I've bound up the strong man and I've ravaged his house. And look at all these redeemed, beautiful saints. Look at their lives. Look at, look at me transforming their lives. Look. He's making the whole world look. He's making Satan and his demons look. And it's not look at us. It's like, look, look at these free captives. Remember, see, remember how they used to have chains on them? Now they don't. Remember how they used to be blind, but now they're not. Remember how they were oppressed, but now they're not. Look, this is what the year of the Lord's favor looks like. And he's parading us around, showing us, because this whole world is so caught up in the domain of darkness, and they are just believing that that's how it has to be. And Jesus says, no, that's not ultimate. So I'm going to parade you through. I'm going to triumph. I'm going to show you the, the spoils of my victory in a proud way. When those kings would bring the prisoners of war through, it was a, a way of demonstrating their power and mocking the people. God's demonstrating his power, and he's proud. He's like, look, look what I can do. Look at what I've done. Verse 15 says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to other a fragrance from life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? That your life, God, is so amazingly proud of. You might not be proud of it all the time. I get that. I'm with you. But God is saying, look what I have done. Look who I have freed. Look at these captives who are, they're learning to live freely. They're learning that they have been transferred from the domain of darkness into this new kingdom. Yeah, it looks different. It sounds different. It feels different. Sometimes it's weird. Sometimes it's not weird. That on the cross, this ultimate act of war, Jesus is raised from the dead, victorious. And he has shared with us the spoils of his victory and brought us into this new kingdom that we're learning to live in now. And our future is secure and guaranteed because Jesus is alive, we are alive. I don't know where this lands with you, but I hope that you are now convinced that we don't have anything to be afraid of with the devil or his demons. That all they do is lie to us and tempt us and try and trick us. We have to be more convinced than he is of who our, Je who our Jesus is, who our king is, and that that act of war resulted in a victory that we are a part of. Let's stand together. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful and humbled and even just the fact that 
You think about angels who were not given an opportunity to be redeemed, and yet you look at us. You could have, you could have had this, the same, you could have made the same decision with us, and it have been, you'd have every right to do it. But your love uh, was greater for us. That you wanted to see that image that we were made in be redeemed and set right side up. So God, we are thankful, so deeply thankful for your cross and Jesus for your willingness to go and obey, to go to war, to fight a war that looks nothing like what we think of with war. That through the forgiveness of our sins, now we can stand and have nothing to be accused of. That we can be free from the oppression of the domain of darkness and that we're learning day by day to live as free men and women. We don't know what it looks like all the time. We really don't. And you know that. So I pray that maybe through these scriptures tonight and through some of these songs we've been singing that Maybe you can bring us to a a deeper understanding of what it means that we've been transferred, that our souls have been transferred out of that darkness and into this new kingdom. Your kingdom, it's because of the forgiveness of our sins and that battle you fought for us. Our desire is to be... um, to join you in that triumphal procession, spreading everywhere the fragrance of your grace and your love to us. And sometimes that's hard to do. I pray, God, that you would bring us to a point of, um, there's a point where we are in touch with the reality of your, your love for us, the seriousness of our sin, but the greatness of your love and your grace. And so we spend the next few minutes, God, just responding. I pray that you would help us to be honest and uh, humble in these moments. We pray this in your name. Amen. So in the next couple of moments, we're going to do what we've done all through Lent. Adam will be here serving communion. You can come and pray. You can stay where you are and sing. And I would just give you this, this challenge. If, if you have been buying into the lies that have come your way from our enemy who's trying to keep you from living abundantly, trying to confuse you about who God is or who you are, trying to convince you that all this stuff is not really true, none of this has really happened, you can, you can tell him no. You can refuse to buy into that, to believe that. And so maybe this time for you is to sing. Maybe it is to pray. Maybe it is to come forward. Maybe it's to take communion. Maybe in, in tearing that bread and dipping it into that juice that you're reminded that the body and blood of Jesus are greater than the lies, greater than the darkness, greater than the circumstances, greater than whatever. So this is an opportunity for us to receive the grace that God has for us in these moments. And so let's be a good steward of the next few minutes together. Because when, we're, when we bless each other and we go, we, we go on that triumphal procession. Like we're going out to the world and uh, we need to do so in full confidence of who God's made us. So let's sing together. Communion is open. The table is there. 
Uh, let's sing together. <laughs>